much. There we go. All right. Welcome, welcome. I am your host, Nika Sherell, and this is the ITCAST Real Talk. The ITCAST is our community outreach podcast that aims to increase diversity in conversations on health and sexuality. Through this work, we are creating a world where all people feel loved, honored, and respected. Visit us on Patreon to support the ITCAST and learn more about our work at NikaSherell's.com. Um, and also subscribe to our YouTube channel and share with your community. Uh, we are reaching and impacting more and more people every day. So please spread the word of this work. Uh, so this is the ITCAST Real Talk on Trauma. And in the booth today, we have hypnotherapist Kristen uh, Rivas and community correspondent Betty Marcon. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Nika. <laughs> yes. So um, thank you, Nika. Yourself and why you're here doing this episode. So uh, please feel free to dive in. Okay, it looks like we're experiencing just a little bit of technical delay, but hopefully that'll smooth out. <laughs> um, so again, thanks, Nika, for the opportunity and for the work that you do. The show is amazing, and I'm so honored to be speaking. Um, the So first off, cultural background. Um, I have been living in Seattle, Washington for, I would say, 12 years now. Um, but before then, I grew up in the South, in Orlando, Florida, Texas. Um, I spent some time even in Birmingham, Alabama. But my dad uh, was a Methodist pastor, specifically the Nazarene denomination, if anybody is familiar with that. And um, we moved around a lot, going from church to church, city to city. I think I went to maybe nine different schools when I was growing up. But um, my mom and dad being the pastor, the pastor's wife, being a pastor's child, that definitely had a big impact on me and my siblings, my sister and my brother. And um, because I would say that specifically my family, everybody, even on my mom's side of the family, my dad's side of the family is pretty conservatively religious. Um, and the reason why I'm on the show today is because I would say that the way that I was raised, the impacts of things that I was exposed to, ways of thinking, um, they really impacted my mental and even my physical health in such a way that when I was 19, I believe that it was directly related to me attempting suicide. I believe it was directly related to me experiencing something that is today known as functional neurological disorder. I gave a TED talk in 2013 about my experience with it. It's also known as conversion disorder, but um, doctors today don't know all why it happens, but usually it does affect, I think an 80 or 90% prevalence rate is among young women when they're experiencing um, puberty or into their early twenties. And most of the people that suffer with this disorder, which is a bunch of neurological dysfunction. It can be um, things that resemble like Tourette's, epilepsy, um, something called dystonia, all kinds of involuntary movement, mutism, vertigo, tinnitus. It's, it's crazy the amount of symptoms that can happen, but usually people have experienced significant trauma. Um, and I would like to be able to share today um, the journey of healing and recovering your mental, physical, mental, emotional health from religious trauma and share any resources, share um, any connection with anybody out there that would see um, how they relate to my story and, and see if I can help them in any way by sharing mine. Yes, thank you so much. That's 
incredible. And um, I, I hope the technical difficulties are complete there. Um, <laughs> um, I was able to really catch, you know, like the difference that you're here to make and to impact anyone who might be going through some of what you went through in their lives. So, yeah. Thanks, Nika. I'm eager to hear Betty, Betty's story here. Betty. Oh yeah. So um, Nika, in, um, I, 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 a couple of weeks ago, Nika had a podcast uh, related to, um, uh, for lack of a better term, genital mutilation and you know <laughs> rituals. <laughs> it, was uh, it was a free of genitals. It yes, was specifically genital mutilation. <laughs> Right. Well, um, you know, and I was listening to that and, um, you know, I, I have um, my background is uh, as a reformed Jew, as I was raised as, as Jewish. And I, um, I offered a perspective on um, what Judaism, how Judaism feels about sexuality and how uh, Judaism, you know, um, the conversation around circumcision actually gave me a little kind of in inroad into this conversation. Um, and so I am um, a, a friend of Nika. Nika and I have been friends for about five years now, I think, four or five years. It's been really, um, really great to, to watch her business grow. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty much support. I've been supporting it um, and advising her on it for a while. Um, and one of the things that I do is I'm I'm committed. I my my background is in the food service industry, um, really in HR and um, culture building, the leadership and communication in the restaurant field. So you know, having been a, a chef owner of a having been an owner of a restaurant and done work with restaurants, that's really professionally what what I do. Um, but I'm really interested in this conversation specifically around uh, how I'm, I'm fascinated, Kristen, by what you shared about the physical manifestation of this real trauma and, mm -hmm. um, and how it relates to uh, your faith, you know, mm -hmm. the, the faith of that, that you were raised with. So I'm really, really interested in hearing more about it. Yeah, thank you. I um, I'll let Nika guide the conversation here uh, where we should be start going at this point. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I brought you both into this conversation because of the history and perspectives you have around religion and how that's impacted sexuality, mm -hmm. so that this can connect some dots for people out there. Um, I was raised Christian, uh, Baptist Christian, and I've got my own like perspective and things I've seen and I know how important healing is around this conversation. Uh, so uh, I would love to hear some of like the messages that you got around sexuality uh, growing up, um, you know, just some of the things that played into your experience. Mm. Betty, would you like to go first or? <laughs> okay. Um, well, it first I should put this a little bit more in context. I was raised in a family of, um, my father was, they, they raised us as reformed Jews, which, which what means is that there are several levels of observance of Judaism. One is an Orthodox uh, observance of Judaism. Judaism, which is very strict and follows many of the um, uh, many of the laws of Judaism very strictly, right? And then there is the conservative, which is much more observant, but still has a little bit more of an eye towards um, what how do how do you function in this world as opposed to the ancient world um, that the Torah was written in about. And then there's the reform, which is much more loose and really based upon the, the tenets of the faith, which have to do with community and healing the world and taking care of the dead and welcoming the bride and all of those things. In Judaism, we have these, these uh, mitzvah, these 613 mitzvot, 
they are actually like laws and rules of actions and non-actions that we are asked to take or not take. Um, this was a list that was created by uh, Ram, Rambam, uh, the um, rabbi who was like the center of Jewish Mishnah, the writings of the laws of Judaism. Um, and he basically wrote these 613 mitzvot and, and within them are um, rules about uh, sex and sexuality, right? In those rules are also rules about kosher, being kosher and so on and so forth. Um, in my household, which was, which was very reform, it was really, you know, if you, it, my father really believed that Judaism was more of a race than a religion. And it was more of an ethnicity than a religion, which is a whole nother conversation. So he was ethnically Jewish, uh, still celebrated the holidays, but really didn't believe in God, which was okay. You can be a Jew and not believe in God. That's part of the whole thing about Judaism is all the questioning. You can question, it's really good to have a question about whether God exists. So anyway, with that in mind, um, I was raised in a, uh, with my mother and father being very, uh, a very, very close knit, uh, fam very close relationship. And the thing about Judaism is that um, it really centers um, the intimacy of the relationship with sex in sex, that you're not supposed to have sex before marriage. That's actually not considered okay. But once you are married, it is a very important piece of the relationship and the, and the, uh, you're actually, you know, actually one of the, the three things that a, a husband has to provide for a wife is food, shelter, and intimacy. And, and you can actually get a divorce in an Orthodox religion for the lack of the third thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't rely on um, how, what you know how the woman performs but really how the man performs yeah, so, yeah. To the female orgasm i've heard like there's i don't right. know how to speak to that but yeah yeah there's a huge you know the thing about sex is that it's it isn't the idea is it's not just for procreation it's also for for creating intimacy in the relationship and bonding the marriage more closely um, contraception has, um, in Orthodox religion, in the Orthodox part of the religion, uh, has often been looked down upon as well as masturbation for the reason of the spilling of the seed. This, the male, the male semen is really valuable and it's, it contains God, right? So as a result, you're, you know, those are certain things that, that we've been taught, you know, or in the Orthodox faith, you don't, you don't practice birth control and um, uh, you don't masturbate. Um, and that's actually much in, in the reform and conservative part of the religion. We don't, you know, we don't deal with that. That's like completely okay. Yeah. Betty, you, so if masturbation is about not wasting the seed, yeah. then is it viewed the same for a woman to masturbate? She's not supposed to masturbate or is it just oh, she, she, She's allowed to masturbate. Okay. Just She's allowed to masturbate. I mean, there, is, there, are, there are real constrictions on certain things that might have you, um, have your mind stray away from marital, you know, oh. marital oh. fidelity. Okay. Right. So, okay. so if, if she's masturbating, you know, and, and thinking about it's what's in her mind, right. Um, pornography in the Orthodox religion is not okay. Um, but pornography is fine if you are doing it as foreplay. Oh, interesting. Right. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's all about that, like intimate relationship between a man and a woman. And in terms of, of, uh, homosexuality, uh, in the Orthodox religion, it's it's completely okay as long as you don't act, you don't, you don't spill the seed. 
Okay, got right? it. <laughs> Don't do anything unnatural. Huh. Right. How is so, natural defined? Bestiality, incest, and rape. Thank you. So not, uh, I was wondering if it had to do with um, like ejaculation other than in the vagina. Like if that's a line there, because I've heard that that is a line, how some people, um, the line of perversion or like uh, even just lustful sex, like if um, the man's ejaculate is vacated anywhere other than the vagina for re um, reproduction purposes, then it is technically not like approved sex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that if you asked an Orthodox Jew, he might say that, you know, okay. it's not right. But a Reformed Jew, you know, we live in today's world. We right, exactly. To, right? <laughs> you know, some of, some of these mitzvahs that we talk about, you know, the idea of uh, like going to heaven, like you actually, there is a sacredness here on earth being in this body. The only way you actually can, can do these acts of kindness and acts of goodness is in a human body, right? So, you know, all of these acts, these mitzvahs have to do with actions you take here on earth right now, right? Mm -hmm. Many of them are, are, are archaic. Um, they have to do with how you feed your, how do you feed your animals and how you plow your fields. Right. They don't have to do with right. anything that's current today. So as a result, you know, reform Judaism has really grown out of that. Reform Judaism in, and, and even uh, conservative Jews don't believe in the Messiah, right? So they don't believe the Messiah exists or will be coming. And so um, that's really like the ultimate difference. So in Orthodox Judaism, you want to do all these mitzvahs because when you do them, the Messiah will come. Right? Gotcha. So, so if you're not really, uh, right, if you don't really believe in that piece, you can still, you can still follow the value system. But, you know, sex, my parents were very open about their, se about sex, um, didn't do it in front of us, but they were very, uh, you know, like there. And, and I think what they emphasized very much for us was it's okay to have um, sex with somebody you care about. And that's, and it's really about making sure that you're taken care of and you care about this person. There's that level of intimacy and in that's most important. Got it. Yeah. That it's hard to imagine what it would have been like to grow up that way. <laughs> Sorry. Well, so anyway, that's, yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing. I learned, I learned some things that I wasn't totally clear on. Thank you. Betty. Oh, good. Good, good. Yeah. I want to hear from you. I'm, I'm very, <laughs> well, that's wow, okay. your story is amazing. Thank you. Um, so I guess being really, really raised. And when I say raised, I was telling Nika about this a few days ago, I guess, of, like I was waddling around, uh, church buildings, um, you know, in diapers and things. There's so many memories that I have of growing up on the premises of an actual church facility where my dad is preparing a sermon or taking care of errands or doing things. And so probably spent, you know, at least three days a week at church for many, many years of my life. Um, and so I was exposed to a bunch of different scripture and perspectives and sayings from before I could speak English myself, I was being exposed to scripture and religious stories and um, different things. Sometimes it was, I guess, age appropriate because I was in Sunday school and other times I was just hanging around in meetings, just running around, hearing things, sitting in on adult stuff, right? Um, but what I would say, looking back on it, um, the specifically messages in regards to sexuality, I think that there was a little bit of a, some conflicting messages because it seemed to me from the story of Adam and Eve that there was this kind of message that, wow, uh, humanity, humans are 
one of God's most treasured, excuse me, um, treasured creations, uh, the apple of his eye. And specifically, even the fact that a woman was made kind of like last, it was like, oh, God, there was night and day, and then there was the earth, and then and things kept getting kind of more and more interesting and fascinating, and then like, ooh, and sexy, beautiful woman came along, you know, and then, um, and in that message, kind of like that she was built for a man, mm-hmm. that God came up with her because man was lonely, and that she was built for his pleasure and to be able to have his children, to be able to help the human race survive, which in one way is like a beautiful, I guess, responsibility and honor and privilege. But then it became a burden when, and again, this is my impression of from the messages that I got when I was raised of just, oh, Eve's thirst for knowledge in listening to somebody other than God um, basically caused her to damn herself and the whole entire human race into um, a disconnection from God because she had sinned. She had done something to go against God by wanting to partake in the fruit from the tree of knowledge. And therefore she deserved punishment, suffering in her body, even like by bearing children that was like her curse. And now there's this thing to where if you don't end up getting back into relationship with God, specifically through acknowledging that he'd sent his son, the word, the Messiah, as I had been taught, you know, Jesus Christ to say like, to do something where you admit I'm a sinner I've been born from a lineage of sinners. There's been a a big disconnection from God. I'm basically hopeless. I'm worthless, like I deserve eternal damnation unless I accept specifically the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ like over me somehow if I take it in like communion and um, acknowledge that I'm a sinner and that God is the only lovely, perfect, holy um, thing in creation that exists and ask for forgiveness and be willing to be back in and totally submit to God's authority. That, so whether um, that was how it was meant to come across to me, that's basically what stuck, I would say. Mm. And specifically that um, as well, that my body was to be preserved untainted through not having sex not contaminated like and specifically meant to be able to have only my husband's um semen kids um only allow him to touch me and experience pleasure from me like i would say that that's a message that i got was that my basically that not there was no emphasis on my pleasure or like a woman's pleasure like sexual autonomy but just that the message that stuck was that my body was basically meant for my husband yeah can you tell the story about the candy bar oh yeah so um i one of the the first um things that i remember which was a specific actual class, I guess, or devotional, some kind of actual experience that was completely focused on sex came when I was in middle school. And it was a Wednesday night, um, a Wednesday night service, midweek service. And so I'm probably like 12 years old. And then the youth group leaders were high schoolers. So they were probably maybe 17 years old. They could have been 16, 18 years old, but they definitely weren't mm. theologians. They weren't pastors. They weren't psychologists. They weren't doctors. You know, what authority did they have other than the fact that they were willing to lead a group on a Wednesday night and have 
looked at scripture and interpreted it for themselves, prayed over it, asked God, like, what do you want me to say, I guess, was the qualification there. <laughs> and so um, I'm not even sure if anybody approved what they were going to be saying to a bunch of group, like 30, 50 middle school kids. But oh what I remember, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there's already a... And there's already some like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Yeah. So this young man, this young woman, teenagers were leading this group of basically like 12 year olds, 12 to maybe 13 year olds. And um, I remember they had a single Snickers candy bar and they opened it. And without telling us what was going on, what we were talking about today, they just asked everybody to line up in a row. And they said, this candy bar has to go, everybody gets a bite. So it starts here. <laughs> like, and so everybody, people were taking a bite and passing it on to the next person. And at some point, people were kind of like, I don't want to. Like, I don't want to eat from this candy bar that other people have eaten from. And it's getting kind of messy and gooey and stuff like that. And basically, at the point to where people kind of refused on down the line, I bet Betty can already tell what's about to happen is the the youth group leaders stopped and they said like this is your body on premarital sex like this is a representation of what it's like to share your body to share your heart um, and to be exposed to like STDs or pregnancy basically like a communication that you would be less than you wouldn't be whole you wouldn't be pure like you would be tainted and dirty and broken and basically not being able to be put back together yeah and basically that was like a night where there was um nika i i can't remember if you'd said you're familiar with this phenomenon but it was a um promise pledges like promise rings you could put on the ring finger like to basically commit that you were not going to have sex with anybody until marriage, right? And that literally is something that ran through my mind when my first boyfriend, my fiance and I, who had been tried so hard for like four and a half years to be good and not touch each other. But one night we like made out, we ended up having sex a few months before we were going to get married. And this was right around the one year anniversary of my sister's death. She had died from a drunk driver. Um, there's a story there. <laughs> but anyway, um, my my first and only love boyfriend, this guy that we had, we were going to a university together. We were both going to be missionaries. We had picked out all of our future children's names. <laughs> um, he ended up a couple of weeks later after us um, having, I guess now just lost our virginity to with each other, which that could be a conversation of itself. What does it mean virginity to lose that, <laughs> right? Um, but he didn't want to get married anymore and he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to talk about it with the, our pastor who, I mean, somebody that was doing premarital counseling with us that wasn't my dad. Um, and it was really devastating and it caused me into a horrible grief shame spiral and that I had all kinds of memories coming up. I thought I'm tainted. I can't, who's going to want me now? This guy doesn't want to marry me. I don't feel safe to talk to my parents or my friends, anybody about what's happened because I've done something so wrong, so bad. I didn't feel even safe to talk to God. I didn't feel worthy, even though of course forgiveness mm -hmm. and all that God's, God's graciousness is of course emphasized, but I, the fear of God and the fear of, of, of disappointing God, that's hard to compete when you keep being like this mixed message of God is uncon unconditionally loves you, but he has the right to damn you to eternal suffering right. at any given moment, because you are doing something so egregious like it would be okay for him to do that. So that was running through my mind when I um, had a mental health crisis breakdown. And after my fiance broke up with me and um, thinking about missing my sister and wondering if she was in hell for being gay, cause she had come out, she had been discovered as being gay a few years earlier. 
and then I was missing her and wondering if she was in hell. And I don't know, the, the combination, all of that caused me to have a suicide attempt. And one of, one of the memories that I remember while performing that suicide attempt was that snicker, that Snickers thing. Wow. Yeah, I know. So um, I know that was heavy. That was deep. But I'll let you guys process or ask me any questions. I mean, one of the things that came up as you were sharing is that that damnation and that that the, the dichotomy of heaven and hell and that judgment is the exact opposite of unconditional love. Oh, yeah. That's all the conditions. That's all the conditions that you could put on a life and say, well, no, I love yeah. you unconditionally. It's, it's, uh, it's an oxymoron and it doesn't work. Um, also, God, there was so much in your share. Thank <laughs> you. Thank yeah, you. thanks for listening. Because um, um, it's not, I don't, it's hard when you really love the people that you grew around, you know, there's so many positive memories of community and support and us being there for each other's times of need. But unfortunately, I think that there have been perspectives just passed down generationally, 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 and people having the fear of even questioning those things to even say, well, is that actually what scripture says? Where did this doctrine come from? What was the sociological, psychological, historical perspective of this, this yeah. belief? Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, yeah. One of the things that I'm noticing in, you know, how you're each talking about your religious background in Judaism, it's like, it, it's, it seems more of a metaphor. It's like, that's what happened then. That's what worked for their world. And we can take the, the parables and the lessons, but it's separate. And I'm seeing some like, deep misinterpretations of like spiritual texts that lead to the shame and the trauma that pops up you know like and it could be it could be anywhere um we just happen to be talking about christianity and the varying forms of it so mm -hmm. i don't know how accurate that assessment was but i'm just hearing that there are some unique differences in how in the in the space of how it gets interpreted interpreted yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well you know one of the things that i i heard Kristen say was about um the shaming you know this shaming of being a woman you know there's this like well you're a woman you're already broken right mm -hmm. and in judaism uh women are, are second class citizens i mean even though um they are recognized for what they bring to the world, they are also really prohibited to do a whole slew of different things, at least in the orthodoxy. Um, and um, yeah, it, it is Judeo-Christian faith is really misogynistic in many ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah which is a tragedy. I believe that directly contributes to sexual violence, the epidemic that is sexual violence. It's just that alone right there. Yeah. And I do, I see how it contributes to homophobia because if there is a, a fear of a woman, a hatred of a woman or femininity, um, if that is looked down upon, then if that is being expressed specifically in a gay man, then there's already, you know, a an overlap there, like a carrying over. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a fear and a shame to it. Um, you know, what really caught me in your story about the promise ring is how geared towards women that also is. It's like, I've never, I mean, and maybe they exist, but like a promise ring for a guy um, like, what is that conversation? Do like, does that exist? <laughs> you know what, to be honest, I don't even remember guys wearing them. Yeah. I don't, I remember that I'm really trying to check my memory and like dig deep here. And I don't remember that the guys wore them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so they were like given to the girls. So <laughs> I didn't even think about that, Nico. Jeez. 
Uh, um, so, you know, it's like another way that yet again, women end up in, in that aspect of the conversation. Um, and this also reminds me of abstinence only education and the dangers of that. Like, I really think that also leads into the sexual violence and lack of awareness, teen pregnancy, and like perpetuating the cycles of, of um, you know, like historic religious preference, like get married, have babies, your body belongs to your husband. So if you learn nothing about health and sexuality before marriage, like you don't go in with any tools. Yeah. I was even telling Nika the other day that, um, thank goodness, because I don't know if it had been told to me in my eighth grade sex ed class, <laughs> but when I, when I eventually did get married, um, at my um, religious university that I was going to uh, at college, another girl who had gotten married earlier that year had like, we were having kind of a private whispered conversation in class and it was kind of like about the wedding night and like, oh, you know, like little giggles and things like that. And um, I remember she leaned in and she was like, oh, I'm so glad that my mom had told me about this because this is truly something that you need to know. My mom's a nurse. When I didn't follow this advice, I got a UTI. UTIs are awful. They can lead to a kidney infection, which could actually kill you. But anyways, my mom told me on my wedding day that I need to pee after I have sex. <laughs> like so the bacteria doesn't get in there or whatever and cause an infection. And basically just remember that to pee every time after you've had sex. Literally, if this girl had not told me that, <laughs> <laughs> like I would never have known like so Betty was talking about how like her parents were kind of open <laughs> about I mean the only the the exposure that I got was about a bunch of don'ts don't do this and then when you get married anything goes just save it for marriage but like nobody talking really about like about even just preparing you for what it's going to be like to have sex with your mate you know in in conservative Christianity, you know, man and woman, husband and wife, <laughs> like heterosex and right. um, just what's okay and what's not okay and how to handle all of it. Like there was no sexual education, like. Mm. Right, nothing of the like, and this is how to enjoy it. This is how to, and like, I didn't learn the thing about peeing until I was in my thirties, which are close <laughs> to it. Like. <laughs> I was like, oh, what makes sense? It's sterile. I don't know. <laughs> You're telling me that if I fall asleep after sex, I could possibly maybe die. Like, and nobody's going to talk about this. <laughs> we talk about all the long term, like diseases and warts and stuff, but like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I in terms of like, um, you know, my parents were very old fashioned and um, in the sense of, I think their sexual, their sexual life was very vanilla, was very vanilla <laughs> because I, I think my mother shared something like that about, about it. Um, once my sister told me she shared it with her. I, I don't know what it was, but yeah. And the fact that my parents had a very vanilla relationship, I, you know, I, I never learned anything from my mother. I mean, she never told me anything other than that. Um, so it was interesting, but there was something else I wanted to say about, um, about Judaism. And I'm curious about this too with um, Christianity. Uh, in Judaism, it is forbidden to have sex with a woman when she's having her period. Ah, and ah. it's actually forbidden to have uh, sex with her even seven days after she's had her period. Huh. And I don't know if you read the book, The Red Tent, or you saw this book by Anna Diamant. It's, it's really about that. It's about, it's about um, Jacob's um, daughter, uh, Dina, tells the story of her mother, um, Leah, uh, who, and, and the stories they used to tell each other in the red tent, which the tent was where all the women came during their periods. And they would all, um, uh, you know, they would all uh, menstruate at the same time. And so they were all in the tent at the same time. And um, a lot of Jewish men, uh, Orthodox Jewish men, will not even sit next to a woman for a f in a, on an airplane for fear that she may be menstruating. 
So you're not Whoa. supposed to touch, Whoa. you're not supposed to touch a menstruating woman. Okay. No, I had not heard about that. <laughs> I have, um, I had read through the Bible, the, the, the Christian Bible, you know, through mm -hmm. several times in my life. And so of course I noticed scripture references about that, um, in yeah. the Hebrew Bible, but, <laughs> um, I honestly just don't remember there being any emphasis on that or, or talk about that specifically. I think that there was just, um, there wasn't ever even an opportunity to go into that much detail about it. I don't yeah, think. Mm. that's yeah. a really good point. Um, <laughs> really good point. Cause like, if you're not talking about sex or sexuality, you're certainly not talking about, you know, menstruation and reproduction and like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah like and, and not and you have to think about like there are people who you know like their parents are like yes go ahead take the sex education class but there are people who only get that information from their parents or you know they only get the education they're getting uh, outside of sex and sexuality and what happens in the church like with the candy bar and there <laughs> candy bar makes me <laughs> i know isn't that an awful thing i it's terrible. <laughs> so when, um, to kind of close a little bit of the loop there of, uh, since Betty, you mentioned being interested in how that impacted my physical health. Um, yeah. Another aspect of the religious trauma that I would say I witnessed and experienced was my sister, the, her treatment from having been discovered that she was a, that she had attraction to women, um, she was reading I think some kind of book where there was a um, lesbian romance, and my dad found her reading this material, <laughs> this book, when she was I think a freshman in high school, and literally all hell broke loose like in our household. We had. I have so many memories of just fun growing up, times at church, times at Disney World, being living in Florida and stuff like that. So many happy times. But from that moment that my parents got into the fact that my sister had attraction to women and was actually having relationships like dating girls her age, mm. um, things just were not ever the same in our family like a great divide happened. Um, so my parents began to hyper-focus on protecting my sister's immoral soul from hell and damnation by trying to help her recognize that this was a sin and that it couldn't be entertained and that she had to stop indulging in what I would call her sexual orientation. <laughs> so um, things there were rules. There was like the, the doors got taken off our hinges. We had to ask permission to change and use the restroom. Like, I mean, to, to change in our restrooms, we like, there was supervision when we had uh, phone calls there, it was like an approved visitor list or who we could hang out with. I mean, we had pretty strict rules for someone living probably outside of an Amish community in the modern world, <laughs> like going up through high school. And um, eventually my sister, and I was being asked to kind of supervise and make sure that my sister was following the rules, which was a hard load to carry being 15 years younger than her. So this started when I was like, I think 12 or 13 years old. And <clears throat> Um, so eventually, because my sister was not taking to it well, <laughs> she did not submit easily. Um, eventually, she was asked to move to for a while in with my grandparents that were in a different state in New Mexico. And so and live in Albuquerque for a while. And specifically for a summer, she was sent to a camp that I think was meant to help get the gayness out of her somehow. <laughs> and um, I don't remember being able to be in touch with her during that time and being able to have contact with her. I know that 
that there was a while where that went really, really rough for her. She experienced major depression, a mental health crisis. But then I think at some point I would, my impression is from knowing my sister, Bethany, that it kind of like broke her spirit or she got smart enough and figured out to just pretend that she was submissive. And strategically, like, anyway, she ended up coming back home at 16 or 17 years old. And there was a time where there was, again, peace in our family as she would go to church and go to school and things. But then it was found out again that she was still having relationships with um, women. Um, and things culminated into a, like a major fight that happened I was a cashier at Kmart at that time. I came home one day and my sister's belongings were moved out of her room and she was gone. And my parents said that she basically was not allowed to come back. And that basically for a while it would be best not to talk to her so that I basically didn't end up going down that route, that road and like taking her lead, I guess. And um, so my sister and I were, were going to the same high school. We ended up being in the same grade because she had gotten held back a year in kindergarten and I had gone bumped up the year, <laughs> bumped up the year. We ended up graduating high school together, but there was a while where we were passing each other in high school and not being able to like talk. It was weird. And so I'm trying to deal with this, like, um, I've got to honor God's authority and honor this religious, the authority of the religious scriptures and what everybody says, the community, family and stuff like that. I've got to try to represent God to my sister and my parents' authority and God's authority and somehow and not cave or something. And yet all the whole time, the years of that crisis of dealing of um, <clears throat> I can hear my sister crying on the other end of the wall, like in her bedroom, like we share a wall, like I have my bedroom, she has hers. And I can hear our friends saying that she's trying to ask for advice about the best way to commit suicide. And so I'm thinking, you know, here is like a 13, 14, 15 year old, this can't be what God wants. <laughs> you know, This doesn't feel right, but I literally have no voice. I have no authority like to be able to go, this feels wrong. I'm not sure where the scripture is exactly for me to make a big enough case that this is wrong. Yeah. But this doesn't seem right. I didn't have the voice to say that. So I ended up when my sister um, now having to like couch surf or like move in with someone else and and us not being totally on reconnected on on totally having cleared the air and gotten on good terms she ended up dying like i said from a drunk driver one night mm -hmm. and so there's all this unhealed stuff and counseling had never been emphasized you know when your dad's the pastor and everybody goes to him for counseling it's like mental health treatment and therapy wasn't exactly it um, encouraged. It was more like pray about it, read scripture, pray about it, you know, like that God will help you sort things out, right? But here I am having questions as a teenager about how safe God is if he's a homophobic, narcissistic, sociopathic, jealous, controlling God. Like I'm starting to feel uncomfortable to go to God, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm feeling uncomfortable to discuss it with my family or my church community. So where do I go? I don't know. It just brews inside. I try to ignore it. Yeah. So probably three and a half years later or so, at like one month to the day after I'd gotten married to somebody, <laughs> um, and that seemed to not go well. Actually, my husband didn't like in my opinion, he just didn't seem to want to have sex with me. And nobody had prepared me for that, that I would have a higher sex drive than my husband. And like sex was uh, like your marriage is for life. You can't, there's no way out of it. And that's like a sin to get out of it. And so I think that might've been one of the last straws to like break the camel's back in my mental health crisis where my body physically started having seizure symptoms. And these things ended up happening. My first 
a functional neurological disorder episode happened, like I said, one month to the day after I got married. And these episodes started happening up to three times a day. I was in a wheelchair, I was wearing a helmet. I was a patient of the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, going to them for almost like the first week out of every month for diagnostic testing to check and see, does she have a, a brain infection? Does she have multiple sclerosis? Like what's going on? What's causing these symptoms? Normal people with a grand mal epileptic seizure, they could take something called Ativan and maybe their seizure could stop dead in its tracks. I could have several shots of Ativan and keep seizing. That's how weird this stuff got. And I suffered with that disorder for almost like almost two years, like a year and a half or so. And mm. I learned when I finally got my official diagnosis of functional neurological disorder that a vast majority, like I said, of, of people that get diagnosed with this are young women that are around the age of puberty or into their early 20s. And a lot of them have experienced trauma, be it physical, sexual, childhood abuse, but a lot of an extreme high number percentage, and I can't remember what it is, it's religious trauma, being in a shame-based environment where you fear being um, disowned or you fear becoming homeless. Yeah. Um, or you have witnessed somebody else in your immediate family be experience abuse or homelessness, like experience a loss of connection, damnation, disconnection from the religion. Yeah. And so I believe that that unprocessed stuff about how my sister's sexuality had been treated directly was kind of um, just stacking stress in my nervous system and in the back of my brain, even though I was trying to stay busy and not think about it or talk about it. I believe it was impacting me because I was having nightmares about it, like literally every night, multiple nightmares about memories of what had happened with my sister, her death, uh, the fights and things about her needing to submit like Harry Potter books being thrown in the fire. My sister's Harry Potter books like wow. and stuff. And, wow. and I think now I share the story and thank you guys. I know I'm taking up a lot of time, but um, that caused a lot of guilt. I had wished that I had stood up for her. Um, and it wasn't until I had this experience with a hypnotherapist, Dr. John Connolly, he's the founder of something called Rapid Trauma Resolution Therapy, where he, he gave me a different perspective and allowed me to experience my own um, critical thinking and empathy and challenge this perspective. Because I walked in there saying, I think that maybe some of the reason why these symptoms are happening is because all this stuff that had happened with my sister, like the grief that I have over the guilt of not having stood up for her, the anger that I have towards God and my family or church community about how she had been treated before she ended up dying, you know, so soon. Like what if in my brain, it was like, well, if she had been living with us and she hadn't, you know, maybe that, that she wouldn't have died that night. And so I think that that's a question that haunts my parents, that they can't, you know, we can, we can experience uh, grace, you know, forgiveness of ourselves. That's something that can happen, but the question is still there. Like that's, you'll never be able to escape from that of like the regret of going like, oh man, was it worth that? Was it worth homelessness? Yeah, no, it's yeah. Um, and one of the things to put in is this happens to hundreds of thousands of queer youth every single day, like being put out of their homes because of the uh, shame context, the, the it, it goes against God, it goes against our beliefs, and they suffer. They suffer and a lot of them do commit suicide. So thank you for sharing your story and, you know, and your sister's story to really, really shed some light on that. Um, yeah. I think that's actually one of the reasons why it's so hard even to just see so many conservative 
Christian people today saying that they're afraid of losing their rights. They're afraid of not being able to practice their religion. They're afraid that the liberal gay agenda or something is like taking over the country. And it's like, do you understand for how many centuries, how many thousands of years, like for how, like our LGBTQ people like are, we're actually dying. We're actually being abused. We're actually experiencing homelessness. We're actively not being mm -hmm. able to live with people that we love yeah. or have children and things. And you're afraid of what exactly? Tell me what you're afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> not ruling the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is this is amazing. Um, I do want you to share. So we talked a little bit about uh, misinterpretations of religious context. Uh, sorry, religious texts, and um, and how that shows up, how that impacts people. You shared a tidbit about homosexuality in the Bible, and I think it's really, uh, really like just good information for people to put some perspective yeah. on how we're thinking about this today. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I have here with me for those anybody that can actually see it, there, there's a book that I'm holding up right now. It's called Walking the Bridgeless Canyon, Repairing the Breach, but the Breach Between the Church and the LGBTQ Community. Um, it's written by Kathy Balduck, who has three lectures, like if you look it up on YouTube, but she can go into way more depth and detail, piecing together an examination of the historical, cultural, psychological, medical, social, and religious lenses through which LGBTQ people have been viewed throughout all of history, basically, with solutions to resolve decades of distortion, fear, homophobia, hatred, basically, discrimination. And I think most people had no idea that the first time that the word homosexual or homosexuality was ever actually translated as such from a religious scripture, that that was in 1946. I misquoted. I said 1943. It's actually three years later than that. 1946, when the revised standard edition of the Bible um, was translated and came out, that that was the first time. So that actual, the word that's shown is, shows up in a few scriptures, mostly in what Christians call the New Testament, um, is actually referencing sexual perversion. Specifically, it's referencing the raping of young boys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is that is such a huge miscommunication and distortion. Yeah, that that people think, um, and I think that this is one of the reasons why a lot of people associate pedophilia and homosexuality together. Plus, that all got Kathy Baldock goes into how that all got wrapped up during the era of communism like the red scare and pedophilia and sexual perverts and homosexuality and it all got lumped together. Mm. And it was a big, very big political thing. There was a big political agenda and that spread over into the Revised Standard Edition, the way that it was translated, the way that it was at that time in 1946. Yeah, and you know, it's so fascinating that every single time homosexuality comes up in the Bible, it's really pointing to a non-consensual act of, of rape or, or abuse. And, I, and so that was something I discovered and it was like, there's an aha here, there's an aha. So the fact that it's such recent information, it's like, it, it's deeply political. And I have the experience of all of our religious texts are deeply political. If you look at when they were created, how was, what was the trend of controlling society during that time, like during that mm. vision of religious texts? Um, so yeah, I this is so thrilling for me. I know we're actually at the end of uh, this show, but I know uh, you both have some additional resources that I would love for you to share before we wrap up the conversation. Let Betty go first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um, much of what I've learned of, uh, about uh, Judaism and sexuality, I uh, read in a book um, called Gates of Mitzvah, the Gates of Mitzvah, 
and you can find it on Amazon. It's a wonderful book about um, different the, the different rules that Judaism has and how they are practiced today. Um, I got the book, I received the book when I was bat mitzvahed at the age of 26, I chose to, to, um, to be bat mitzvahed at that, at that time, because when I was 13, I didn't have an opportunity to do that. So I did it as an adult and got this book. And it, it was it just really wonderful in terms of teaching you how the Jewish life cycle goes. It's a book about the Jewish life cycle. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Eights of mitzvah. Gotcha. Well, first off, I think that anybody who's experienced religious trauma from any religion, whatever it is, um, I've, I think it would be great to check out recoveryfromreligion.org. There's a giant list of resources there. There's a, a huge community to help people. Um, recovery, say that one more time. Recoveryfromreligion.org. That this website was extremely helpful for me and my healing journey. Um, some really, really great people that are actively serving and protecting and helping that community. So many resources there. For people specifically that are dealing with religious sexual trauma that are among the LGBTQ community, there's a wonderful resource called freedhearts.org. I'm friends with Robert and Susan Cottrell. Susan Cottrell has a TED Talk online that's called Why I, um, I think it, it's basically why I broke away from the evangelical church for my LGBTQ daughter. I don't, that might not be the exact title, but basically um, there's so many resources on there for especially LGBTQ youth and their church communities, their families, their parents to try to get really, really educated about this issue and help people move through whatever potential trauma or disconnection and questioning and all that kind of thing. Um, I mentioned the book by Kathy Balduck, Walking the Bridgeless Canyon, worth mentioning again. I think it's interesting though to educate yourself a little bit on why these conversations can be so challenging. There's a book called The Righteous Mind, Why God, what, excuse me, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. There's also, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of, you ladies have ever heard of um, George Lakoff. He has a book, I think it might be called Moral Politics. That's also really good. But this goes into the science of why religion can be so triggering for people to address like worldviews, questions, being prepared to talk to each other in a way that could help be less triggering. And that's my, the last book that I'll recommend uh, Nonviolent communication. This helped me get over a negative, critical, shame-based way, a judgmental way of an internal dialogue within myself and being able to relate to other people in a non-aggressive but empathy-based way. Oh, and I forgot one other thing. Um, the Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place by Danielle Sh uh, Schroyer. It's very good about questioning the doctrine of original sin. What does that exactly mean? So if you're still going, oh my gosh, well, what, what the question of sin and the emphasis of sin, um, Freed Hearts, Susan and Robert Cottrell, they also have like a great podcast that can help people that are in the midst of deconstructing religious trauma and how to relate to um, their family who are still religious and things. It's a lot of good resources there. <laughs> Beautiful, thank you so much. Could you actually, uh, if you don't mind, pop those in the chat so that I can share them? Uh, Absolutely. Right. Thank you. I've put them. I've put them in the um, in the chat in uh, YouTube. Oh, beautiful. Okay. So they're definitely, or is this YouTube? This is Facebook. They got it. Facebook chat. <laughs> I got YouTube. <laughs> Okay. Um, beautiful. So uh, thank you so much for sharing those. And we'll go ahead and wrap the show. Before we close, uh, I also want to share a resource, the Trevor Project, which oh, yeah. 
in LA, they help a number of LGBTQ youth uh, get on their feet, get off the streets, uh, be taken care of. And I believe they also provide mental health services. Um, so thank you both for being here. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you everyone for joining us today. The ITCAST is our community outreach podcast that aims to increase diversity in conversations on health and sexuality. Through this work, we are creating a world where all people feel loved, honored, and respected. Please visit us on Patreon to support the ITCAST and learn more about our work at thesherelles.com. Uh, that's N-I-K-A-C-H-E-R-R-E-L-L-E-S.com. And also subscribe to our YouTube channel and share with your community. Thank you so much, and we will see you here next week. <laughs>